Paul, here in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. That is, he says, I'm begging you. I implore you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Paul has spent the last three chapters driving home all that the Lord has done for you and me. Uh, He wanted to make sure that we know all of the glorious mysteries of God's love, his grace and goodness. How that it was God who chose you in spite of you, and how he called the Gentiles, and who, who were alienated, he said, from the commonwealth of Israel, and has brought them near unto himself. Many Bible teachers, in order to make the book of Ephesians more understandable, have broken it into basically two different views, if you will, or, or, or a way of seeing it in a way to understand it. The first picture that is uh, probably more common is the picture of sit, walk, and stand. You know, first we're seated with Christ in heavenly places as Paul talked about in the last three chapters. Now he's telling us to walk worthy of the vocation wherein we have been called. And then he's going to tell us to stand as we get into chapter 6. So that sit, walk, stand, it's, it's a good way uh, to remember how the book is divided, if you will. It's a very simple thing. But another way, which I think is just as valid, and I, and I like it, is to describe it from the point of the wealth of Christ. That is, the first three chapters, Paul talks about us being in heavenly places with Christ. You know, the, the wealth, the things that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. So it's the wealth of Christ, the things that God has given unto you and blessed you with because of your faith in Christ. And then, of course, the second one is the same as here. It's walk, you know, walk worthy of that vocation. But the third one in that particular picture is warfare. Because Paul's going to say, put on the full armor of God. And so uh, they see it as, you know, uh, to wealth. I'm getting mixed up here. Wealth, walk, and warfare. And which is just as good as, uh, you know, sit, uh, walk, and stand. So once again, it's just a way that people have come up with to help us to understand how this book is is divided. Now, one of the great mistakes that the church has made is in putting the proverbial cart before the horse when it comes to how we relate to God. And what I mean by that is that the church has, over the centuries, been busy emphasizing the walk first getting people to do what is right, if you will, trying to teach them to walk the talk. Uh, Before, though, they they even know how to sit, kind of like trying to teach a baby to walk before he knows how to crawl, and then being upset with the baby when they fall. This has been the problem in the church for centuries. 
because man has this inerrant problem in himself that he just has to relate to everything by doing and receiving. It's just the way, and we're brought up that way to be, most of us are. You do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. But this is not what Paul is teaching us here in the book of Ephesians, which is why he spent the first three chapters teaching us all that Christ has done for you and me, that we're seated with him in heavenly places. The church often emphasizes, here's what you need to do. So too often people wind up going through the motions of devotion, but it's really motivated from a stance of performance rather than from a transformation that's brought about by the Holy Spirit because of the grace, the love, and the mercy that that's being poured out upon the believer. This is why it's important, I think, that I, you and I both understand first the work that God has done for us, you know, before I can properly respond to it, because that's really what we're called to do. Once again, the problem with emphasizing the walk before the sitting is that it generates a performance-based response to God. I'm working, you see, that God might respond to me. I remember being at a pastor's conference years ago. And it was an open conference, which meant there wasn't just pastors there, but there was parishioners there. And there was this one brother who uh, was very enthusiastic about what was going on at the conference, but he wasn't a pastor. And I don't even know how long he'd been a Christian, but he started talking to me, and he was very, he was an older fella, and he was very exuberant. He was, you know, all excited about what he was, and, but he was telling me what was going on in his life back in the town in which he lived, and he had gotten involved in, in some street ministry, and, 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 and here's what he said. You know, he, he talked about how much he was doing for God, and then as he walked away, he looked back, and he says, you know, and, 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 and God's obligated to bless me because of that. And he walked away so fast, I didn't have an opportunity to challenge him on that mindset. But that, my point is, is that that mindset is typical, my friends. It's typical. Do good, get good, you know. That you wind up making man the initiator and God the responder. But when God's work, when it's his work that matters... Because that's really the emphasis here that Paul's trying to make. It's God's work that matters. And, and it's not mine. Then my response to God is what becomes important, you see. Not trying to win the favor of God. But basking, if you will, in the favor of God. Just sucking up and soaking up the blessings of God. You know, why does God bless me? I don't know, but I enjoy it, and I'm thankful for it, but I certainly do not deserve it. When God is the initiator, when he's the one doing the work, then I am the responder. That's what you are, too. You're the resp we, we respond to the things of God. And when that is the case, my life will be fruitful in my walk with the Lord. But so often today, 
in preaching, when you hear preachers, there is this tendency to reverse that order, or as I said earlier, to put the cart before the horse and to make man the initiator and God the responder. They turn the whole thing upside down and make it inside out and backwards, and it just really ruins all the things that God wants for you because it makes you not able to receive it. But that's not the gospel, my friends, because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel. And, of course, the word gospel, you know what it means. It means what? Good news. Good news. And if we have to earn God's favor, if, if I have to manipulate God into doing anything for me, that's not good news. That's a job. <laughs> that's works. That is not the favor of God. That is earning something, and God will not be a debtor to any man. And it just makes you one miserable Christian because the fact is you're never going to do enough to deserve the blessings that God pours out on your life. In John 3.16, you know, Jesus gives us the order that God desires. You know, for God so loved the world. It's not hard to understand. He initiated it. God so loved the world, so he's the initiator. That whosoever believeth would not perish but have everlasting life. That's man's response. So whoever responds to God's initiation of his love to mankind becomes the recipient of it. But that's the order that it has to be in. John said in his first epistle, you remember, he says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So God's the initiator. Second Corinthians, Paul said, it is the love of Christ that constraineth us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. When you think about the issue of constraining, it's a, it comes from a term that kind of means a cattle press. And for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, cattlemen have what they call a cattle press. And as they herd their cattle, as they go through, sometimes cattle need to be ministered to uh, physically, you know, with medications. And, and the cattle press kind of holds them in place so that they're not injured or hurt when the, when the husbandman is, is, is administering the, the, you know, what's needed. And this is the idea that Paul says it's the love of Christ that constrains me. It's the love of God that holds me in that place where I will not be injured because it's my benefit, it's my welfare that he is concerned about. And I'm thankful for that. You know, it's the, it's the love of God that constrains me. You know, the gospel, the good news, you know, that's what it means. You know, the love of Christ is being showed to me. That's good news. It's constraining me. It's doing the work for me. You know, it's not a hard concept, but what I want you to get is that we are responding to the love of God. It's the Holy Spirit, really, that's working in and through my life that is also motivating me to respond to the love of Christ. Paul said to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith 
you have been called. Now, because of all that God has done for you, our response should be one of gratitude. There's no doubt about that. But the beauty of our response, and I want you to understand this, is that the response really isn't even your doing. It is the Holy Spirit that's working in you. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit has come, he will not speak of himself, but he will speak of me. That he will come into your life and he will be the comforter, one who walks alongside. You know, he's not only with you, but he is in you and he empowers you according to uh, the first chapter of Acts. Jesus said and told his disciples, you know, you have been baptized with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so stay here in Jerusalem for not many days from now. You shall be endued with power from on high. So the Holy Spirit is with us. He's in us and he empowers us. Today in Christendom and so many denominations and churches, the preaching of the power of the Holy Spirit is either overemphasized or not emphasized at all. The problem, and what I mean is that sometimes the Holy Spirit is preached only as a force or as a power and not as a person. You know, he's the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. These three are one, 1 John 5, 7. And when he comes into your life, it's, it's not just something that he's there just kind of kicking back and having, you know, a, a good time. It's, that's not the case. The fact is he comes in to help us and to conform us, the Bible says. You know, the Bible teaches us that those he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. And how does he do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. So my response is what I want you to see. My response to the love, grace, mercy of God is not even really me, but it is the Holy Spirit that's in me that is moving me to respond in an attitude of gratitude. Therefore, I want to walk worthy of the vocation wherein God has called me and to represent him correctly. Walk worthy, he said because of all that he has done, because you are in Christ. You know, he's called you to be an ambassador. And so often I think that we forget that. I was sharing with a brother the other day who uh, was talking with me about these very issues, and I encouraged him in his witnessing to make sure, you know, that you're representing God properly. You remember... Moses when Moses was doing what God had called him to do and the children of Israel had become pretty discontented and uh, pretty demanding in in what they were wanting as far as water Moses became angry at the people he got mad and even though he had already struck the rock and God had told him to, to do that once he went out to the people and he said must I bring water from this walk for you? And he was angry, and he struck the rock again, which threw off the whole picture that God had planned for them. And it cost him. It cost him. Oh, you know, he still went to heaven, but he didn't get to go to the promised land. It, it cost him. Why? Because he had not represented God rightly. He had not been a good ambassador at that moment. And he portrayed God to the people as angry when he was not. Moses was angry because <laughs> he was irritated. The people, and I can imagine why, but 
God will not tolerate that. So Paul says, walk worthy, walk worthy of the vocation you've been called. You're an ambassador. God has called you to that. He's done everything for you. Now walk in gratitude. It's really that simple. And the Holy Spirit is going to help you do it. You know, our response, you know, uh, to God is just simply allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you in how we respond to the love of God, you know. And, and then it's real. When I'm responding and I'm really yielded to the Holy Spirit and I'm, I'm responding to the love of God, you know it's real. And it'll show. It's evident. Because my response to the love of God, to the grace of God, to the mercy of God, to the favor of God is to walk worthy and to represent the Lord the best that the Holy Spirit can allow me to do. As long as I'm not getting in the way of that, you see. Now, if I try to work in order to gain favor, then the work that I do will be a poor representation of a life that is motivated by love. If I try to gain righteousness, you see, to gain my points with God, you know, by doing the right thing or doing something for the Lord, then it really avails me nothing. I have often found that you can always tell when a person is caught up in this false gospel, and, and make no mistake, that's what it is, in this bondage of works in order to supposedly obtain the favor of God. Because it never garners peace. They don't have peace. Because it is man-initiated. And it's by the Spirit of man, not the Holy Spirit. So, and if it's by the Spirit of man, and it will lack what? The fruit of the Spirit which is love, peace, joy, long-suffering, meekness. You know those things. It doesn't have the patience. It doesn't have the joy that it would normally normally accompany uh, when it's genuinely the Holy Spirit responding uh, through me to the love, grace, and mercy of God. It'll lack those things. So in other words, those who are caught up in that false gospel of performance, and, and, and really just trying to relate to God by what they do, uh, a very religious thing, but a very miserable thing to experience. And they are miserable because they are miserable. They often want everybody around them to be miserable, not consciously, but they, they just inflict that on people. They can't help it because they're the ones who are seeing themselves as doing, you know, in fact, they can't understand why you just have joy. <laughs> they just don't get it. You know, you're having joy in the Lord because they don't, and they don't understand. They're toiling, working to gain God's acceptance, but to no avail, because you're never going to be good enough. You, 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 they, they really have a hard time when they see you simply sitting and basking in the wealth of that God has bestowed upon you as you begin to respond with a walk that is worthy of your vocation. You do it with a joy and with grace, and this they cannot grasp. They don't get it, and it infuriates people. It infuriates those who are trying to work their way to heaven. 
just as the elder son, you remember the prodigal. You know, he went off and did his thing, you know, and the father was so allowing. He let him do it. You know, you want, okay. And who was the one who was angry in the whole thing? The brother who was what? Toiling. I've worked all these years. I've done this and I've done that. Even when the prodigal returned and the father had seen him afar off and ran to meet him and put his coat on him, put a ring on his hand and and was rejoicing that the son who was lost was now found and then told the oldest son to, you know, go and prepare the feast. And, And it ticked him off. And I think that's kind of funny. I mean, maybe I just have a morbid sense of humor, but here was the guy who was working and toiling and was upset that this younger brother, this prodigal, this rebellious one, his father was pouring out lavishly his love upon because he was rejoicing in the fact that his son was home and alive and, and, and had come back. And yet the one who was working was miserable. And he was the one who wound up happening to fix the fatted calf. I just always thought that was interesting and, 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 and suitable, to be honest with you. And it's just the way the Lord is because God is the initiator. God is the initiator. We are the responders. So walk accordingly, Paul says. You know, respond accordingly. Allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in your life that you respond with an attitude of gratitude, being a good ambassador of God. You know, and how, how does that look? I mean, if I'm going to walk worthy of it, how should I live then? Well, look at verse 2. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Hmm. Jesus showed us what this looked like. Uh, Those of you who are taking notes, you can write down Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, because it relates directly to what Paul's teaching. He says, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You know, make note of what what Jesus said. He says, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. So you see, this is the response that the child of God has when his understanding of the grace of God is correct, when it's real. It produces fruit. It it is the heart of lowliness and meekness. Uh, That's what follows when your understanding of the grace of God is where it should be. God is so good to me, you see. And he's so gracious to me. And I just want to respond in such a way that my life represents the work of the Holy Spirit accurately. Now, I know I'm not worthy of it, but I'm thankful for it. And so lowliness and meekness, and that's how we are to live, and that's how we are to respond to the things that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. But the person who has a work-based relationship often finds him or herself glorying in what they have done for God, boasting, if you will, bragging even. But there's no place for that when I genuinely realize all that God has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ. There is no bragging in that because you had nothing to do with it. When I'm overcome by the glorious grace of God, 
which I am so totally undeserving and unworthy of. The fact that I know that that's what drives me to my knees in response as far as having an attitude of lowliness and meekness. You remember back in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul said, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? See, that's a man who is responding with an attitude of lowliness and meekness. A man who has been humbled by what God has done. A man who has had a true confrontation with God and who has humbled and has been humbled by that very confrontation. The response is lowliness and meekness. So unlike many of the guys that we see on television and we hear on radio or Facebook and all the medias that you can possibly imagine, you see them strutting about seemingly with endless pride, you know. They even joke about the, the tennis shoes that the preachers wear and the cost of them, you know. And they flaunt their wealth and all that they have. No meekness and certainly no lowliness. And it's a shame, for the lowliness and meekness are the earmarks of a child of God who is responding to the goodness of God. But not only lowliness, and meekness, but he says with long suffering, forbearing one another. And I like the word forbearing because it means to put up with. So we're to put up with one another. You know, endeavoring, verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I want to draw your attention there in verse 3 to the fact that Paul used the word endeavoring. So we are to walk in lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring. That means working hard to keep the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. So if you want to work on something, we'll work on keeping unity. Well, and that's what we want to do. We want to have unity of the Spirit, but at the same time, we dare not seek unity for the sake of unity alone. Because unity for the sake of unity alone always leads to the acceptance of heresy. The church has a long history, my friends, of this very problem, which Paul the Apostle warned us about. Now in Ephesians chapter 5, which we'll be getting to very shortly, Paul is going to warn us about false brethren about those who get off into damnable heresies, if you will, of the such were the Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism was a heresy that cropped up in the early church. Their basic teaching was that everything that was material was evil and that the material world was not really created by God. They taught that God, in the beginning, had sent out these emanations from himself. And one of these emanations had gotten so far from God and that it really had ceased to relate to God. 
And the agnostics taught that it was this emanation that got so far from God that created the material universe that we, are, that we see with our eyes, but that it was given over to nothing but evil. It, they said it was pure evil. They said that there's nothing that you could do about it. Only that which is spiritual, they said, was pure in the sight of God, according to the Gnostics. Thus, they taught that Jesus really didn't have a fleshly body. And their reasoning was, if Jesus was God, God could not inhabit anything that was pure evil. So it really wasn't a body. They taught that Jesus had simply appeared seemingly in a phantom body. They actually believed and taught that if Jesus was to walk down a beach, because he didn't have a physical body, that his feet would not even leave footprints. Today, we would call it something uh, along the lines of a hologram. That's what they really believed. But it went further than that. They, they took it further than that. So they began to deceive people with this very doctrine, saying that Christ had not come in the flesh or didn't have a physical body. And you remember the Apostle John wrote about this very heresy in his first epistle. And he said that if any man comes and denies that Jesus Christ came in a flesh or came in the flesh, he's Antichrist. But once again, like I said, they didn't stop there. Because of their false philosophy and this false teaching that all material things are evil, they surmised that because all material was evil, it really didn't matter what you did with it. You see, your body is physical, and therefore they taught that your body, because it was physical, was evil. And because it was given to evil anyway, it didn't matter what you did. Because the only thing God was looking at, you see, was the spiritual side. You know, they, they believed and taught that it was perfectly okay to commit fornication of any type that you could wallow in perdition, you see. It didn't matter because it was all material. And material is evil, and the only thing that God looked at, the only thing God was taking into account was what you were in a spiritual sense. So sin was absolutely okay. And they literally became the ones who preached what Paul said, you know, that they accused him of that let us sin because grace abounds. But they actually did it. They performed it. They lived by it. But in combating this false doctrine, Paul said, don't let any man deceive you with vain words. He says, now, we're living, of course, in a similar situation within the body of Christ, within denominations, and even many non-denominations have given themselves over to this philosophy. Now, they don't call it Gnosticism. They embrace a false doctrine of inclusion. That's what they call it. It's a different heresy, no doubt, but the result will be the same. You know, you've heard me say a million times, and heresies and false doctrines are like falling from the 85th floor of an Empire State Building. It really doesn't matter if you fall from the 80th floor or the 8th floor. The result is still the same. So it doesn't matter whether you call it Gnosticism or you call it the doctrine of inclusion. It will lead to the same place. They have reasoned 
in their mind that sexual sin is no longer relevant to God. That it doesn't really matter, you see. Not only do they allow the sinful lasciviousness, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and such like, to exist unprotested in the church, they also ordain people who practice such things. They say that God doesn't care. God doesn't look at those things. That you can live any way you want because you see, you were born that way. Well, Paul said that we are to walk worthy of our vocation wherein God has called us. We are to represent the Lord, my friends, as ambassadors of Christ, but we're to, and to do that rightly. Living lives that exemplify lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love and trying our hardest to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But we cannot, my friends, have unity with the works of darkness. It's something that Paul even asked the question, what concord has light with darkness? It, it, it doesn't. It has no agreement. In fact, Paul said that we are not to have fellowship with the evil works of darkness. But we are to expose them. We are to reprove them. If we don't, more people will be deceived and be led astray from salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. We want to have unity in the Spirit, yes. But unity for the sake of unity will always bring us in league with the devil. This, my friends, we cannot do. I am very convinced that what we see going on in the world today is the hand of God. I do believe that we are living on the brink of eternity. I've been saying it for years in my daily broadcast that used to be on, on Calvary Perspectives and other radio shows that I've done. And I've always told people, we are living on borrowed time. Ever since Israel has been restored to its rightful place as a nation, and then, when Jerusalem became the capital, the clock has been ticking. And now, we are living in the midst of the beginning of birth pains that the earth is being thrown into. Many things are not being mentioned on the news that are in the news, but they're on the back page. The fact that we're seeing more earthquakes in diverse places. The fact that pestilence now, of course, has taken the front seat. But also in the Middle East, there are swarms of locusts that are devouring the land at a great pace. But these things are not even mentioned. Why? Because of all the other stuff that's going on. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, please go back and read it. He says, when you see all these things begin to come to pass, then lift your head and look up. For your redemption draws nigh. Paul says, walk worthy of the vocation wherein Christ has called you. You know, represent the Lord rightly. Allow the Holy Spirit to have his way as he conforms you into the image of his Son. 
pray for one another, my friends. These are strange times, but they're times of opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the real gospel of grace, love, and mercy. You know, it's very simple. If you've never accepted the Lord, I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you. Change your mind, my friend. That's what the word repent means, to change your mind first about yourself. The Bible says you were born a sinner. You are wretched in the sight of God, my friends, whether you like that or not. Realize it. But God in his great mercy has given a cure for the situation. And that's his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in, in, in John 3.16 that whosoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. Why? Because God loved the world. God loves you. And it's not his will that any would perish but that all would come to repentance. Do it today. There might not be a tomorrow. I'm telling you, my friends, and especially those of you of Calvary Chapel here in Newark, I wake up every morning but I expect to hear that horn, that sound of the trumpet, anytime. Now, I'm not making a prediction. We're going to continue to occupy till the Lord comes. I just believe his coming is going to be sooner than what we know. Be ready, Jesus said, for you know not when your Lord returns. We love you. We thank you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you. If you haven't given your life to Christ, do it tonight. You know, let us know if these studies are ministering to you. I'd like to hear from you. You can write to me at ccn43055 at gmail.com. That's ccn43055 at gmail.com. And let me know that you've made a commitment to Christ. And we'd like to help you out. We'd like to send you some stuff to kind of help you in your walk with the Lord. So until we see you again, may the Lord richly bless you, my beloved. God bless you. We'll see you.